Hey everyone, we're back. DF Direct Weekly, number 94. And uh, yeah, not so much of uh, an array of news for us to, to cover this week. Very little happening, but you know, we're still intent on putting together a decent show. And joining me, first of all, we have John Linneman. Hey Rich, yeah, it's a little bit of a slow week, but we came up with some interesting discussion points, I think. So it should be fun. Absolutely. And of course, Alex Badalia. Hey there, Rich. Hey there, audience. Excited to talk about... <laughs> Hi, Jake. Yeah, hi, Jake. Excited <laughs> to talk about Ubisoft failings and a whole bunch of other stuff today. Okay, uh, we're going to kick off with um, not so much a news topic, but certainly a point of discussion that a lot of people seem intent on uh, on us wanting to talk about. And it's really simple. Um, obviously, uh, with the recent release of Mortal Shell on Nintendo Switch, it's the latest in a series of ports that have kind of underperformed or rather haven't lived up to performance expectations and um, it's kind of creating further momentum for the argument that the Switch is running out of steam and um, this is a big thing right because um, coming up to March this year it will be the system's sixth anniversary typically that's the kind of time where we would expect to see a next generation replacement thus far we've seen nothing from uh, Nintendo um, John how would you sort of rank the current situation at the moment? Because it's clear that third-party titles are struggling. Now, there's a counter-argument, of course, which is that if you target Switch from the get-go, no problems at all, because, you know, that is your primary target. But at the same time, we would expect Nintendo to be delivering those titles. And I think it's fair to say that that list of titles is kind of winding down. I mean, is there much actually confirmed after uh, the new Zelda game this year? That's a good question. And I would say on the first party side, we don't entirely know yet. And that was also the case last year, I think, with uh, 2022. And Nintendo did publish a fair amount of games for that system last year. And a lot of them were quite good. Uh, so I wouldn't say Zelda will be the only release this year. I mean, they do have that remake of Kirby from the Wii, which looks phenomenal, but ultimately just a remake. And Advanced I'm sure there will Wars. be other things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hopefully at some point in Advance Wars. But I think it's pretty clear that with Nintendo, when they target the Switch hardware, there's usually not a problem. I don't see that as an issue. But it's the third-party stuff that you mentioned that is starting to become an issue. And I think it's kind of a similar situation as we saw with, like, we were talking about this yesterday, like late PS3 and late Xbox One, where those platforms now become more of a, uh, a challenge for developers to target. They're no longer the priority anymore. They're not trying to push them. They just need to get something out and as best as they can. And I think with the Switch, it's in the situation where most new titles now that are multi-platform are starting to target higher-end platforms as the base version, right? And then you're porting down to like Xbox One and PS4 and everything. And because the, the baseline is increasing, it's becoming more challenging, I think, to offer an acceptable Switch experience. You know, it just, if you want to do that, it's going to take a lot of engineering work, time, effort, money, all of that. And I'm not sure everybody wants to dedicate those resources to making that happen at this point. And it's kind of becoming a liability. And I think it's only going to become more so when things like Unreal Engine 5 starts to gain a foothold, right? Like conceivably, you know, we know Unreal Engine 5 does work on the Switch, right? It's it's already in Fortnite, uh, but you're not going to be using the latest features like Lumen and Anite. And if the game's art pipeline is built around that, you know, 
that also means that PS4 and Xbox One won't be viable for those titles, right? But those yeah. are now last gen. Switch is still Nintendo's current gen. I mean, I was thinking about when this narrative actually began, and it actually began with a first-party title, Bayonetta 3. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Thinking yeah. about it. That, that, well, that, that, to, Bayonetta 3, though, is a weird situation because that it's a very Platinum-style game. Platinum is notorious for this, uh, for better or for worse. Like, their games just release with performance problems, right? Uh, they are not known for targeting and nailing 60 FPS they kind of got there a little bit with some recent games that were less uh, technically, I guess, advanced on PS4 and the like. But you look at like Wonderful 101 on the Wii U when that launched, it was an absolute mess. Dropping into like the teens, 20s at times with a maximum frame rate of 60 FPS. Bayonetta 3 is not actually that bad, but it's in that ballpark, right? Yeah. It's uh, I think it's just trying to show that even if you're not going for a cross-platform game and having to downgrade it to get it to run on the Switch, if you have higher ambitions, for example, your video about Bayonetta 3 did point out the fact that a lot of the areas uh, of the game have you just kind of in like really large areas with like really big bosses and like lots of alpha to the front of the yeah. screen. Stuff that we know that the Switch isn't really good at, as in, you know, like large open world titles, as well as alpha uh, due to the low bandwidth situation there. I think it's just trying to show that if you want to be more ambitious over your previous game, uh, this current Switch hardware is actually going to be a main limiting factor in that. Something that new hardware would hopefully uh, at least remedy most of the problems of the original Switch right. away. Um, so I think that that's the situation that it's currently in right now. Where if you want to go bigger and better, which is usually what sequels do for games, uh, you are actually limited by Switch. And regarding the current current-gen situation, I think Switch was really lucky that the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One had such awful CPUs. Um, because it, <laughs> yeah. al it allowed uh, the, the actual downgrading of the games. But if we look at, for example, the most recent porting efforts of uh, Sniper Elite games, if you go into their... Um, like nvidia gtc presentations about it they actually have to do a lot of extremely low level programming to get the performance they are getting out of the switch and that yep. is a level of dedicated resources that i don't think every studio wants to go through uh they have like an entire team who's really into switch and really dedicated to it but if you want to just do a quote-unquote easier port where you're using maybe not the lowest level hardware you're not doing like assembly <laughs> kind of coding here uh which i would imagine is the way you'd want to port a game usually do it in a quicker easier way extracting as much performance as possible you're not going to be able to do that with any of the current gen games on switch using something like the vulcan uh, back end that the switch offers and get good performance so i think that's the current situation here and they actually probably do need new hardware to get cross platform games on the switch in the next year and a half or so yeah because i so, feel like nintendo itself would be fine sticking with this hardware as long as possible right like i don't think mm -hmm. their internal developers care <laughs> that no much. no they don't. uh but it's more like if they want to retain uh third-party support they kind of need to do it yes yeah, for specifically call of duty was just announced to be uh be targeting switch in the next couple of years through microsoft and the activision merger right it was one Wait, of the i mean it was one i of the think they nintendo they expressed right? the desire to do it maybe or well, like promised I, it but I, I don't think it's officially happening right well i think they're gonna do it though uh we'll see uh but uh, i think that requires new hardware in general even though those games target 60 always it's more like i think <laughs> to get a good experience there's, there it's going to require a new lot hardware. of 
a lot of ways to get Call of Duty onto Switch. It oh, doesn't no. necessarily require using... First of all, they could use uh, legacy games. They could bring legacy ports. I think, you know, if they just put Black Ops Trilogy on Switch, it would, it would, so, it would, it would oh, just sell gangbusters. That's a good point. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, they could just put Warzone on there. There's Warzone Mobile, which they could use as a basis. You know, there's a lot of different ways they could bring Call of Duty to Switch, which doesn't necessarily mean bringing the current generation versions uh, to, to that hardware. And I think it's a, a, an agreement with Nintendo specifically, so it probably would be next gen four if they were intending to do a more modern thing. I mean, I was just thinking about this. I mean, obviously the first party stuff from Nintendo itself is is usually untouchable right whether it's 60 or 30 it works but you know you do get stuff like Hyrule Warriors which yeah Koei Tecmo is not really well known for <laughs> that stuff no they're pretty bad at yeah, almost anything technical so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't really know where we can go further with this because um, but what I do think is that um, one of the reasons why Switch was so successful was that diversity in the catalogue right and there was a, 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 a an array of factors that made that happen. First of all, obviously, you had Nintendo putting their first-party efforts onto the system, which is always great, which is always a guarantee of success. But secondly, they they had the entire library of Wii U, which most people didn't play, that they could bring over to the new system, which basically, you know, some might say that it massively augmented the first-party output. The third factor is the third-party support, right? This is... This is we can't sort of understate how important that was because prior Nintendo machines couldn't um, or, or rather didn't get the third-party support it, it, they kind of needed. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I think what's happening now is cross-gen. If there's less effort going into the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One versions, then there's less effort still maybe or or less optimization going into the switch specific versions and it's interesting that you bring up rebellion there because as you say the sniper elite stuff in fact all of their stuff uh has been absolutely brilliant on switch and the reason why it's brilliant is because they've got a dedicated unit of people that love the switch hardware that want to get the most out of it which is awesome and it's and it's not an afterthought, right? I mean, yeah, those Sniper Elite ports, you know, they're, they're knocking on 1080p resolution. They're, they're, they're comparable with PlayStation 4 simply because they're intelligently ported by people that really love the system. And yeah, they're doing some amazing low-level stuff to, uh, to to get the most out of that GPU. But it's it's something that's not going to be... It's, it's not standard practice, right? And that's why those ports stick out. And you know, Rich, I think uh, your mentioning of the Call of Duty Black Ops trilogy release, that type of concept, I think that's still... That's a good way to hobble through the remaining years <laughs> of Switch. Uh, because on holiday, I uh, brought along with me Burnout uh, Paradise on the Switch. I was playing that in portable mode. And it was just, you know, that's a PS3 era game. But seeing something like that run with those types of visuals improved even at 60 frames per second on a portable system like that, like it feels great. Right. And I feel Mm -hmm. like more games from that era or early PS4 era, you know, companies should tap into their back catalog and I bet they'd get some decent sales out of them. Mm. I think, you know, there's, there's so many examples though, where I do feel that we're kind of reaching the end of the road. John Sonic generation. uh, It's not Sonic generation. Sonic Sonic frontier. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks that was... because that had an impact on every version, right? Because they set right. like the 
the the hard-coded settings within the game engine for when to draw in objects in the terrain it was all it's the same across every single version and it was clearly defined by the switch and that that's basically responsible for the pop-in that everybody experienced and pc modders are working to fix it but it's a it's a huge pain in the butt and i think you know again they wanted to get this working in switch and they just wanted to use one setting across the board for that specific oh boy <laughs> so yeah but but it does feel that we i mean zelda is obviously going to reset the narrative to a certain extent but that's still months away right um fire emblem so, engage that i just covered i thought was a nice boost over uh that last game which by the way koei tecmo did develop <laughs> technically <laughs> so that kind of explains why that last one three houses looked as bad as it does <laughs> so Okay, so we've discussed um, the situation with the current Switch, its failings, and um, uh, basically the trajectory going forward. But basically, I think at some point, we're going to be needing a new piece of hardware. And we're kind of reaching the point now where we are, you know, six years into the current Switch's lifespan. That's that's a huge amount of time for what was, technically speaking, an outdated chipset at the time it actually launched. So I think it's been pretty miraculous what we've had out of it so far. But let's talk about what's going to happen with a new Switch. Um, typically, when a new hardware uh, design from Nintendo comes along, it arrives with a kind of, um, I hesitate to call it a quote-unquote gimmick. I think I think concept is probably a better word. The concept with Switch was obviously the concept of a hybrid console. Before that, there was the Wii U scenario. Now... We know that um, Nintendo are quite agitated, I think, concerned about the nature of this upcoming transition. Um, so, John, what do you think? I mean, does the next Switch need this new concept slash gimmick? No, I, I don't think so. And honestly, given the current leadership, which has proven to be somewhat more conservative. I'm not sure we'll see that either. I mean, this is the first time we've had a new Nintendo system from the ground up since the old guard, you know, obviously since Iwata's passing, Reggie's gone, you know, a lot of change has happened within the company. And since then they found huge success with the switch, which itself, while I guess kind of revolutionary in design with the whole console slash portable idea, I don't really think they, they need to change it again, and I don't think they want to rock the boat, especially if it would potentially compromise their development plans, which has seen them sort of consolidate behind one platform rather than supporting multiple platforms, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting I, point, Alex. I'd agree with John. Essentially, they, they struck gold with the concept of making sure all their developers are focusing on one platform, which allowed them to have the output that they did. And uh, didn't split. It didn't have a split audience this time of people who just wanted a 3DS and only played on the go. Uh, so they keep the same audience. One thing that I think uh, that they do need to actually ensure, though, uh, if since they're not going to have a quote unquote gimmick, if they don't, I, I really don't think they need it because it's also hard to imagine what it could be uh, at this point in time. They've already tried, uh, you know, glassless glass without glasses 3d they've already done the second screen thing which was a disaster uh they've already <laughs> done motion controls uh, i honestly think motion controls haven't advanced too much beyond the vr space and they're not going to go i don't think they're going to go into vr 
either because it's a more solitary multiplayer less experience you know it's more of a single player well, they already thing. did well slightly i don't think i don't know about that <laughs> it's not exactly a good vr experience uh the the labo thing um but the <laughs> uh i think at this point it's about consolidating their current market and then expanding it in any way they can um that usually doesn't mean a gimmick but to keep that level of market, I think they do need to ensure backwards compatibility as a part yeah, of this. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely key. Microsoft and Sony have shown that backwards compatibility is a big plus uh, to a new machine coming out. You already have a catalog that's there. And uh, you also, in this case, you know, N Nintendo has been allowing, um, you know, games to be downloaded uh, without a cartridge for a while now. You can get them on their store and things like that. I think maintaining that continuity of account to another Switch successor would be a great way to ensure the console's success. So I think that's what and they it's, need. That would be the first time they've done that. Yeah. Because that's what they're notorious for is not... So they have previously offered backwards compatibility in the form of hardware uh, support where you physically use your mm -hmm. game discs and cartridges, but they've never really allowed users to carry over their accounts between systems and use those purchases on new platforms. And arguably in the past, they're... It kind of makes sense given the extreme architectural differences. Like nobody was expecting to play 3DS games natively on the Switch, right? I think, or the same with Wii U. I mean, I, I don't think that's that's viable either. But uh, this time, I think they need to offer it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the concept of carrying over the library, I think, has become an established norm now that people uh, that people expect. I, you know, Nintendo are the masters of reselling their existing libraries, which you know is is something that I don't think is gonna is gonna wash this time around. I think that's that's something they're gonna have to embrace. <laughs> and I would like to see those increased performance boosts because, um, from a compatibility perspective, overclocking on the existing Switch I don't think has actually caused any problems at all with any title. You know, it, it kind of just works like a PC in that way. So, you know, the concept of actually using the new hardware to, to get better performance on your existing games, I think that could be one selling point, probably not one that they're likely to linger on. Nintendo typically don't talk performance at all. Things just kind of work, right? Um, I guess this kind of leads on to the concept of what specifications it should have. And I think people, as always, need to temper expectations <laughs> because yeah, ev I mean indeed. literally every Nintendo system in the history of Nintendo systems since basically online four uh, became a thing <laughs> the concept of uh, the specifications have, has been oversold time and time again and uh, Nintendo just aren't really interested in that I think they're going to want to keep um, the handheld side of things to be as manageable as possible so the idea that we're going to get this massive steam deck like design capable of dissipating like 27 watts <laughs> at any given point isn't likely to be the case it's going to be a small svelte device just like the current one um, mm -hmm. it might even i mean if they're sticking to the current power budgets of the existing switch then wow you know we, and they possibly would do that because battery life is very much a concern for them right um, Alex, where do you think they're going to land? I think it's pretty obvious at this point they're going to stick with NVIDIA. Yeah. Um, uh, which which basically limits <laughs> the amount of hardware that they've got available unless they're going to go for some bespoke design. 
Uh, I <laughs> uh, point out the shirt for that one. Yeah. Um, well, we do. Uh, we do need the quote unquote shirt. That's for sure. We need. The, yeah, that's that's the next one. That's coming up. Um, I think in this case, it's going to have to be the Empire offering uh, that we talked about once in the video before. And I think there's also been some leaks regarding this too about some confirmation of a certain chipset. Uh, or SOC that was in production at one point that yes, would have been. It's the all in one. All yeah, in it's NX. the all in one. Yeah. That's that's what it was. And the NX, my goodness, uh, that that's a very nice name. Uh, I I think that's going to be it. And I think uh, one thing that they probably as a part of that, and it's already part of that uh, as well too. When you look at the specs, is that just like a better CPU, like way better, much more advanced ARM there, and I think the memory speed. I think actually GPU wise, the current switch is surprisingly okay in a lot of titles the thing that oh, rears yeah. its head usually is when like just any sort of open world game just struggles really hard on the switch usually and any single time where it's really obvious that we're looking at a bandwidth issue uh and improving those aspects while keeping the exact same resolution i've maintained it when i made that dlss video that i honestly think the screen the on the go screen should stay the same resolution and i think the thing that yeah. like pushed me over the edge for that was using the Steam Deck where I saw actually like a, a normal HD screen, 20, you know, 720p is really good uh, for on the go handheld gaming, especially one that will be smaller than the Steam Deck. Like I imagine the, um, uh, this Switch successor would be because, it, you know, that small screen real estate really makes the most out of that, uh, you know, lower pixel density at that point. One thing I'm curious about whether or not is they would do uh, VRR which is something I'm not sure has mm. been talked about at all. That would be really smart. Uh, that would be smart. It would also be another battery lifesaver, depending upon how it is utilized. It could also be a, a battery life waster, <laughs> depending upon how it is used. But it would allow, uh, if it is actually like something like that, they could, for example, do instead of a 60 FPS target on the go, they could do like 40 FPS and, and things like that mm -hmm. instead of compromising other aspects of the visuals. Uh, there's a lot of things that could be done with a VRR screen and Given how things are these days, they've already switched OLED switch. They have the concept already in the company of using higher quality screen products. Maybe that's the next step. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, where do we go with this? I mean, I do think that the uh, Orin chipset is is the most likely candidate, right? Because um, it's not on the latest cutting edge process nodes, i.e. it's affordable. Um, secondly, it does provide a generational leap over um, uh, the Maxwell. Tegra X1, yeah, uh, the Maxwell architecture. Um, I guess the question is the extent to which it's backwards compatible, because you know AMD bake this stuff into their designs, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's never really so much of a consideration for Nvidia. But at the same time, um, it's more likely an API thing, right? You know, it's. It's mm -hmm. going to be the successful mm -hmm. transfer of the NVM uh, graphics API, I suspect. There, um, whew, it's uh, it's really tricky to see what we're actually going to get here, simply because you know, as I said, it's not a performance isn't really a core consideration for, uh, for for Nintendo here. I am still intrigued by the DLSS thing. Uh, I do think it's mm -hmm. going to support it. I don't think they could have really grafted it into the existing Switch for a number of reasons, but mostly because, you know, how many games actually have motion vectors that would actually 
<laughs> you see where I'm going with that. Well, I, I think I don't think it would be an automatic thing. It would be it's, like it's got to be supporting it and patched in. Um, yeah. Yes, but I think the the requirement there would be would be onerous. I think it's far more likely to be a thing that's a standard thing when you've got a whole new generation of games to tap into. I think that's the right. Oh, yeah, like as a sure. part of the API, like you just say, oh, yeah. I'm going to be using DLSS, and the the console knows it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the DLSS thing because, Alex, you've run the sums on this you know, back in the day. We did a video about whether DLSS is actually going to be conceivable for a mobile device. And the answer was uh, kind of wobbly hand, maybe. <laughs> right? Yeah. It was all predicated on the fact that they are using a, a model complexity of DLSS that is the same as the desktop one, which they don't necessarily need to do. They could make compromises on quality uh, of that model and, you know, like the size of it to make it run better on the Switch. Uh, that's one thing they could do. But at the same point, then you're losing maybe the quality when you plug it into a bigger screen. And the new Switch will for sure support 4K, I'm pretty sure. If they only supported 1080p, yeah. I'd be very surprised. Well, um, yeah. Well, I, think the, the, yeah. <laughs> I think the question is um, not so much using DLSS to upscale to 4K, but actually using DLSS to upscale to uh, produce a picture that's actually presentable on a 4K screen. Oh, that's what you mean. There's okay, going yeah. to be a bunch of Xbox Series S games yeah. out there running at 1080p that are going to be displayed on 4K displays. And they look all right, you know. I don't think yeah, I don't think you necessarily need to use DLSS to output 4K, right? I think that's the bottom line. Maybe that's there's a true. maybe because the computational cost of DLSS is linked directly to the output resolution, right? Yeah, it completely is. Uh, also, one thing that to take into mind here is with the recent uh, CES presentation, Nvidia did make mention and they did show some results of it of how they made the ultra performance mode of DLSS at 4K look better. I, I mean, this could just be general model improvements that their supercomputers are doing, but that would be a really good use case then for uh, Nintendo's Switch successor, 720p up to 4K. Uh, obviously, it still yeah. has that larger com- computational cost that Rich talked about, but that. It already, I've already seen it look really great in titles. I thought it looked incredible, actually, in Portal RTX. Uh, so if that's the future, the, then Switch would definitely use it. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts from you on this, John? When do you think they should actually produce this machine? Because I think it's, uh, I think it is high time. I, I still wouldn't be surprised if it did arrive later this year. It would be, it would be against form, I think, because they do usually would be pre-announce surprised. it. I'd... I genuinely think it's going to be a 2024 thing at this point. We might see an announcement though this year. I could see that, uh, I, it like popping up out of nowhere sometime in the fall where they sort of tease its existence and, you know, and then next year kind of roll it out. And that also means, you know, the, the switch launched in the spring, right? So they could do that again here unless they're really crazy and just, uh, I don't know. Again, with this new management, it's hard to hard to understand what they're thinking because, as we know, uh, a lot of top management gets things wrong or has weird expectations, <laughs> like <laughs> Ubisoft, <laughs> uh, that yeah uh, leads to ruin. And I don't know. We haven't seen what this new uh, executive team can do when it comes to generational transitions. Do you guys have so, a recollection of how long the announcement of the Switch was before it came out? Yes. It was exactly like that. It they they did an initial announcement video, like conceptual video, in fall of 2016, I believe, yep. 
And then there was like sort of a hands-on event in early January mm-hmm. where they really rolled out more information. And then it launched in like March. Yeah, that's exactly that's what good. happened. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at some data here. Chris Dring from gamesindustry.biz. Um, the Switch was the biggest <laughs> the biggest console seller in 2022, right? Which is possibly surprising. But its sales were down 25% against 2021. So I think there's two things to take yep. away from that. First of all, that the existing Switch has been a, a juggernaut success for, for Nintendo. But we've peaked and we're on the way down now. And that's typically yep, the yep. time where we do need new hardware. That's typically where at least the announcement happens. Thus mm-hmm. far, there's been nothing. Maybe there has been some sort of behind-the-scenes drama with um, you know flirtations with a pro model or whatever. But regardless... Um, it's 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 kind of good and bad news for Nintendo. Uh, so I don't know. Possibly you're right, John. We will be seeing a uh, an announcement this year. Um, but there's still the concept of um, the first party stuff being a bit thin on the ground. It does, from my perspective, seem to be the case that May with the new Zelda seems to be kind of almost like the last. Well, the Pikmin 4, I think, was Forgot discussed that, as wow. a 2023 game, and we still don't know what the situation is with Metroid, right? Uh, inclu- including the remastered versions. Uh, so who knows there? Though I think this is it's become a point where I think Metroid Prime 4 as a launch title for whatever comes next would be extremely wise on their part, you know? Because mm-hmm. clearly uh, Zelda... I don't expect it to get delayed again, and I don't think they would want to delay it any further just to release alongside a new console. But Metroid Prime 4, that would be a pretty good one. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think that pretty much wraps up our thoughts on this. It's a really complex discussion to have. and uh, A lot of people have been asking us to have it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Precisely. But yeah, I do think we're in this kind of difficult period for them because cross-gen is winding down and... As I said, the games that were struggling on Xbox One and PlayStation 4 will struggle still further on the Switch. Uh, So, yeah, it's going to be a a case of um, kind of waiting and seeing what's going to happen for the rest of the year. So, Rich, is Mortal Shell Switch's uh, Shadow of Mordor moment? (laughs) (laughs) Could be. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Maybe the Far Cry 3 moment. Maybe it's not that that bad. bad, is it? I think I think <laughs> as a whole, the industry has got a whole lot better at managing cross-generational transitions, right? And I think it is a lot of the time down to the fact that, you know, middleware is is, is a lot better. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. also, yeah, these versions aren't being built from scratch, which I think was the case with uh, with those ones. But yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I think that wraps up that discussion. Um, but let's move on to actual news that happened this week. And uh, yes, referring to my sheet here, um, I think we should talk about the Xbox uh, developer underscore direct, uh, which has uh, been uh, <laughs> about. <laughs> anything with directed, it's never going to catch on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so basically, um, I think this is actually a really positive move from Xbox. Um, they're going to be launching their own series of developer directs, developer underscore directs. And um, the first one is coming on January the 25th. It's going to be covering titles including Elder Scrolls Online, Forza Motorsport, uh, Minecraft Legends and Redfall. And um, what's interesting about this is there's going to be no sort of uh, frontman hosts or anything. There's going to be no trailer BS. It's straight 
gameplay and its straight developer commentary from the from the developers. John, this is a really good idea, right? Yeah, overall, for sure. Uh, it does make me wonder about release dates then, because usually I feel like Forza Motorsport is a fall release yes. game. So uh, this will be interesting to see them sort of teasing it and showing more of the game this far in advance, uh, which is, you know, that's cool. Uh, Redfall is the one I'm most excited to see more of, being a huge fan of Arcane's games. Uh, and the more I see of this, the more excited I am because my initial concern that it was like a left for dead style game, but clearly that is not the case, thankfully. Uh, and it seems to be very much an arcane style experience, which we'll see more of the, the big, uh, I guess the, the strange thing on this for me though, is that the continued inclusion of the elder scrolls online, I suppose it must be a large enough success to continue to warrant this, but it feels like the filler game that has been clogging up Bethesda conferences at E3 for like the last six years. You, you say that, Maybe John, more, but none like, of us have played it. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't all lack we, experience. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. Just, I'm t- <laughs> yeah. But see, that's the thing. It has not been compelling enough to trigger us to actually want to play it, and thus it keeps showing up, and it makes me want to play it less each time it appears. because <laughs> You see it so often? But uh, It's got to have an audience, yeah. right? I mean... Oh, it definitely it, does. It clearly it does. Yeah. It does. But it is a little bit... I'm Yeah. Redfall, Forza, those are the main ones. Minecraft Legends looks potentially interesting. And I think a lot of people were talking about Starfield being absent. And as they confirmed, there's going to be a standalone show for that, which I think makes sense because Starfield is such a huge game that they can... They can do whatever they want with Starfield, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they could put on a huge presentation and showcase it that way and get plenty of engagement through it. So it doesn't need to be here. Mm-hmm. So um, Alex underscore Vitalia, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what do you expect to see or hope to see from Forza Motorsport? Because this is like probably our number one uh, uh, eagerly oh. awaited title out of this lineup. Well, from a technical I perspective, wa- certainly. I definitely want to oh, see, yeah, okay. uh, well... Last time they showed it, there was a lot of confusion about what the heck they were showing, uh, and we kind of put them put the pressure on them to like explain it better because last time there was like the pre-rendered sequence trailer, which was like offline-ish footage of the PC version running at higher settings, and then there was the thing that was running on a PC at Xbox One or Xbox Series like settings. Right. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and I didn't. That's not good. They have to, I think if they show it off now, they have to be very, you know, honest about what it is running on and like what the audience should expect of it. And also to show a bit more about like the general racing features of the game. Uh, Last time it was just like a single track kind of thing. They just showed it off. I I would be curious to see what differences it has versus the other titles because it's the first time we've seen gameplay from them uh, ever since they kind of almost soft rebooted the series where they took it offline for a couple of years instead of having like semi-annual releases. Uh, and I would love to see what they've done in that time to the gameplay to warrant that time off, not just engine stuff, but actually gameplay wise. I would like to see that with regards to yeah. Redfall. Uh, that was the one where I think that is the only way to show off this type of game. Every single like trailer thing they put out as part of their conferences before, whether it was that first initial reveal trailer, which was just honestly, it was just like pre-rendered, I got no sense of what the game was. The second time they showed it off, um, I actually, like John, thought it was a Left 4 Dead game. 
uh, like a multiplayer Left 4 Dead game, and I complete turn off. And then I read most recently that it is going for a more open world, uh, like organic structure. And I was like, okay, the game never looked like that before. <laughs> yes. Probably because it's it's probably because the way you show off games with these really annoying uh, sizzler reels and teaser snippets doesn't lend itself to actually in-depth game design discussion or presentation. Redfall needs this kind of thing and it maybe will make people interested in it because I don't think they've done it well enough in the past. So that's what I hope we get there. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, all I'm going to say about this is I'm really looking forward to seeing all of the games, but specifically every time (laughs) we've discussed or done reaction videos to, to sort of media briefings, We've, we've never really been happy with the content and the style of the content and how it's presented. And I think work, this is word for word exactly what we asked for, which is to get the developers front and centre to talk about their games, to show us how they work, to show us the passion that they've got for it, and you know to actually try to successfully capture what it is that we're actually going to be playing. Because, you know, (laughs) this whole Redfall situation has been utterly, utterly, utterly bizarre, right? And I don't blame Arcane at all for it. And to a certain extent, I don't really blame Microsoft either because E3 is, you know, and and those kind of, you know, game awards, those kind of um, uh, media uh, environments aren't conducive to nuance, right? It's all about cramming in as much as you can into like 60 or 90 minutes, and, mm-hmm. you know, what it does do is raise awareness, I would suggest. But what it doesn't do is actually effectively communicate the nuances or even in the case of Redfall, the basic idea of the game. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing I'm liking about this is that it is just four games over who knows how much time they're yeah. going to be doing on it. But like one thing we always complained about in the past is that you just kind of forget what's going on because it's trailer after trailer after trailer. Each one's like a minute and a half long, maybe two minutes long. You just... Uh, I don't know how you say it. You go like snow blind with the games you're seeing after a little bit while yeah, the flashing and all the mm-hmm. stuff, you know, you just forget what you're looking at. Uh, so more concentrated. This is the way I would like to see it. Sure. I think I think what's happening there is when you sort of centered on a specific way of selling a game, it becomes a template of sorts and mm-hmm. games just kind of blend into one another. And it, it reaches the point where it's only the games that actually yeah. have dramatically different presentations that you actually remember. <laughs> um, you know uh, and yeah that's so i thinking about that i feel like developers like arcane should definitely be looking back at like say if you recall gabe newell's presentation of half-life please do that time, right oh my god like that was extremely memorable you just get someone charismatic from the studio to come up there and showcase different aspects of the game in a way that really gets people like excited about what they're seeing you know rather than trying to spice it up like a trailer just you know, pick certain sections that really demonstrate this is what the game is about. Mm-hmm. And if you present it right, it can be extremely uh, powerful and memorable for the audience. And that was kind of like, that was the way of doing things back in the early 2000s through mid 2000s. I mean, that's how Bioshock was revealed as well to the players when they first showed it. It was again, it was like Ken Levine and maybe another development partner just talking over the game, showcasing how it works. That stuff's awesome. And once they shifted to more just trailer-like presentations, it uh, it kind of killed those events and reveals. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Absolutely. So um, we're going to be watching that. There may well be a reaction video, depending on the uh, the level of content and the amount of commentary we've got to say about it. But uh, yeah, I think this is definitely the way forward for um, for Microsoft. And they've got a, a massive, massive selection of games this year, which we kind of need after a 2022 where essentially they had, you know, not much at all, to put it in a very generous way. So yes, good stuff there. And um, let's move on to our next news story, because this one is, again, Microsoft related. Um, there's this kind of uh, headline here, which sounds like BS, but I actually think there is something to it, um, where they're saying that Xbox becomes the mo- <laughs> becomes a carbon-aware console. Now, on the face of it, you know, you might think that's total nonsense, but I'm reading um, the, the press release on Xbox Wire, and... Um, what they're saying is being carbon aware means reducing carbon footprint by optimizing updates and downloads to run at a time when the console can use the most renewable energy. There is actually legs to this, right? Because this is exactly the way I charge my electric car. And with a, a um, supplier called Octopus Energy on a tariff called Octopus Intelligent. The way this works is that um, you say when you need your car charged by, and then Octopus takes control of when the car is charging and it does so in the most um when renewable energy is is the biggest net contributor to the grid so this is actually a really interesting way of of actually producing a you know a, a carbon responsible way of charging an electric car and it's a similar principle here where they're basically um going to be making the console active to do the kind of housekeeping stuff when the most renewable energy is being pumped into the grid. I think this is actually a really interesting idea. There's also going to be um, console updates are going to be scheduled uh, when the larger proportion of energy is coming from lower carbon sources. So this is actually an intelligent way of of handling um, background tasks on the machine, but it doesn't interfere with the way that you're actually going to be playing the console. I mean, if you need to use 200 watts on your Series X to play Gears 5 or whatever, then you can still do that. Um, It's just a really interesting idea, though. Um, They're also going to be mandating the um, use of the shutdown energy-saving power option as opposed to the instant on, uh, which, again, I think is a really good idea. You still get all of your updates and whatnot, which uh, wasn't always the case. It's kind of more similar to the PlayStation REST mode there. Uh, any thoughts on this, John? Yeah, I mean, that's all a good step in the right direction. It's just they, I would like to see them continue to push this forward by one, uh, they allowing users to set up their console offline, right? You know, no required online setup, and two, uh, work on the repair of these machines because right now, you know, an Xbox could become e waste if it just fails and there's no real ability or these these are not easy boxes to repair and that's affects its potential future down the line mm-hmm. i don't think they're necessarily thinking about like people using an xbox series x like 20 years from now but it should be possible to to retain and and keep these machines running and uh i don't know i i still think that removing that online step is key and i think they have mentioned investigating some of this stuff we just haven't seen anything come out of it yet so it's not it's not a given that it won't happen, but I, I you know, it's still something I think about long term. Mm. Uh, I guess that's a bit, well, that is a something that should happen, right? Because it's what play, how PlayStation works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and Nintendo Switch works the mm-hmm. same. And most consoles work that way. Xbox 360 works that way. 
Uh, it's only with Xbox One that this, as Don Matrick pointed out. Started. There is still the Xbox 360. I, in a way, it almost feels like what we're what, this issue is still a legacy problem caused by the original plans for Xbox One. I think obviously the concept of having to be online to update your machine to actually use it is a really bad idea, and I do think they need to to, to figure that out. Uh, I do think the concept of what's going to be happening to your Xbox in 20 years uh, is, is is something quite different because it, it's not going to be used by most people in 20 years. So the question is, what is the most responsible way to deal with um, consumer electronics without turning them into e-waste? You know, what, what are the recycling opportunities there, that kind of thing? Um, That'd be a great initiative actually yeah i'm not sure whether it is the case now but certainly um you know the the plastics could be recycled there's going to be like precious metals on the on the motherboard and whatnot i don't know but um i, I don't know whether there's a long-term plan for that but you know there certainly isn't with xbox 360 because you know there are you can actually go onto facebook marketplace and get a job lot of dead 360s you know like <laughs> 30 cons 30 consoles for like 50 quid or something but thankfully they they can be quite not maybe not easily but they can definitely be repaired so yeah a lot of them can that's true a lot of them can it's quite a time intensive process to do that though um on 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 the like the uh the red rig of doom ones you're looking at like a reflow of the soldering and whatnot i mean you know that's just that's the nature of collecting old consoles keeping the stuff running it's like you know nursing old cars basically <laughs> working on old muscle cars keeping them alive it's the same kind of thing right there is a certain amount of commitment required after a certain point and i don't think microsoft should necessarily need to provide services for that but it would be nice if they make it as simple as possible for people that want to do that to be able to do that with the product that they purchased you know mm -hmm. i think you know another thing to point out um series s is essentially um, a really good machine for lower power consumption gaming. Certainly nowhere near the Switch or the Steam Deck or whatever, but you know you do have an option to play the latest games with a, a console that is extremely power efficient relative to the larger consoles. Series S is interesting when looking at this argument about offline play, though, because that is fundamentally an online console, right? There's nothing you can do with it without that. So that does kind of make things weird because it would just be a thing for Xbox Series X only, right? Uh, if you want to play disc-based games offline in the future. Although, you know, the real solution here would be a jailbreak. <laughs> Similar, you know, like a PSP Go is worthless right now on its own. But if you jailbreak it, you can do whatever you want with it and it's fantastic, right? And, you know, being able to do that with a Series S sometime in the future would also be great. But Microsoft security has been rather robust, I must say. Well, it's more the case that there's, you know, because there is a, uh, an option to actually access the Xbox as a, as a PC, effectively, you can develop UWP games for it. Uh, mm -hmm. The, con the concept of having to hack it and install Linux and whatnot isn't really a, a, a priority for a lot of hackers. So it just doesn't seem to happen. <laughs> yeah yeah oh just being able to run unsigned applications yeah. you know just play whatever you want on there i mean i have an xbox 360 that i do have modded and you know i mostly use my real disc games on it but 
for some Xbox Live Arcade stuff that's been delisted, it's very nice to be able to just download it and stick it on there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're not willing to sell it anymore, then that's, sometimes you got to resort to those mm-hmm. things, right? I, I do think, obviously, the concept that there isn't a way to actually access disc games on a Series S is, is problematic, especially when it's positioned as a, an entry-level way into gaming. And also, if you've upgraded from an Xbox One or an Xbox One S and you've got disc-based games, you can't use them on the Series S. I think that's something... Microsoft yeah. need a solution to. I would love to see a Xbox Series SS, if you will. <laughs> you know how they they revamped Xbox One with the Xbox One S, and I would like to see a model like that for Series S that retains the price point, but maybe they've been able to cost reduce it just enough to be able to include a disc drive. I mean, I know that doesn't jive with the Game Pass plans, but just a disc drive capable Series S. Well, awesome. there's a lot of rumors uh, circulating at the moment that the new PlayStation 5 is going to be a, a, a discless machine with an optional disk drive. Which I hate that so much. But, you know, it is a solution for Series S, right? Which would be you know, is. an yeah. external drive, which would allow you to access your legacy titles. Obviously, there was that bizarre patent that you would actually use your Xbox One effectively as a network mm. drive just for accessing <laughs> license keys, which is kind of nuts right kind of bizarre that's pretty funny actually <laughs> put put it in the server closet your xbox one just leave it there <laughs> but you'd have to manually shuttle the oh the discs uh, we... yeah you're right so, so you'd put it in you'd have to pull your whole xbox one library of discs into the server room and make a rube Goldberg machine that inserts uh, this and put them on yeah. a disc changer yeah we need disc ch- disc changers <laughs> No we, no, we don't. Ah, dear. Okay, um, let's talk about our final news topic of the week. What on earth is happening with Ubisoft? Um, they just seem to have disappeared off the grid. You know, there's there's no games uh, that we've covered from them in, in recent times. Uh, yeah. There's, there's uh, no Assassin's Creed. That's been delayed. I think there is one due this year. Um, but all of those uh, big Ubisoft franchises are kind of like, not happening at the moment. There's, there's, we've not seen anything of them. Uh, the financials came out and there was a massive drop-off in the share price because they've canned three games um, and uh, things are looking pretty grim generally. Email from the CEO going oh. out to all of the staff saying, hey, to reverse our fortunes, it's all on you, when it actually looks more like a sort of management issue. Oh, it completely is. <laughs> just, just looking at their list of releases, actually, I think this past year... Uh, we covered Mario, Mario and Rabbits, Sparks of Hope. Which underperformed. Uh, underperformed. There was Assassin's Creed Origins, which is an older game yeah. that received PS5 and Series X slash S update. I think we covered that. And we did. Yep. Assassin's Creed, the Ezio collection. Which for, for Switch. Oliver also covered. So again, yeah. an older game. <clears throat> oh, and he did cover Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Extraction. So sorry, Oliver. We Oliver has just been our Ubisoft, Ubisoft guy <laughs> this year. But not, most of those are either old or not great. Yeah. Yeah, I would argue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, nothing, nothing big or new from Ubisoft since Far Cry 6. Right. It's, mm-hmm. It's been them betting on the wrong horse, it feels like, for a while now, um, kind of missing the boat with regards to, uh, for example, like um, the whole sh- hero shooter genre, like them trying to get into that, them trying to get into a lot of uh, free to yeah, free to play kind of things that also just never worked out. And, and then kind of keeping the same structure of Assassin's Creed and keeping the same structure, like I look at... Uh, 
uh, what was that name of that Wildlands update uh, that was like a single player, not single player oh, game, yeah. uh, Breakpoint or something. I forget what was the name of it, but it was just mm. like completely missing the point of what this, what people were interested in in regards to the genre. And I'm actually not surprised that the Mario Rabbids uh, tactics game failed uh, because when I think people look at that game, the 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 lure of the original was kind of someone is actually getting this IP from Nintendo and making right. a new game out of it. And it had nothing to do with the Rabbids connection at that point in time. It was like lightning in a bottle that it sold as well as it did. I have no idea why a sequel was greenlit at that point Dude, in time. It's, but it's, it's a such great game. a good game, though. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, but like... It's basically like XCOM. Yeah, but it's like... What is the second game going to do differently than the first one? It did. It did a lot of things differently uh, in terms of encounter design and world design. It made like gigantic changes to the underlying game. It's a great game. It's not. It's not just more of the same. Okay. They actually did massively alter it. I would say. I think that was a good move to make that game. It's just with the rabbits though. With the rabbits though, is that why people I mean, like their, it? That's their. I, that's their IP. <laughs> it's, it's a really bad IP, then, in my humble opinion. It's, I mean, it's, it's popular. <laughs> People, it's basically their minions, you know. I guess, I guess maybe, but like, I don't know. I don't like the minions. Either. I don't like that, the minions either. That so that's going to be my point. You 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 position that as a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sales, it, you'd feel like it might be, but apparently uh, didn't help at that point in time. But I, I just feel like they've been missing the boat, and I really do really wonder what's happening with the skull and bones game at, yeah, at the sixth point. delay. Yeah. Uh, and Beyond Good and Evil 2 as well, which is probably not even existent. Uh, well, I mean, they said they canceled three internal titles. What if one of them was BGE2? But that was announced. They said three internal unannounced games. Mm. Unannounced. Unannounced, they said. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. There's so much that Ubisoft could be doing. Um, you know, what's what's happening with Splinter Cell? That is a massive franchise that people want to see, you know. they They need to get that right. Whatever that is like that is going to be such a key title for them because that does have that nostalgia factor and it can still be a relevant game idea. And, uh, I really hope they figure it out and nail it mm -hmm. and don't turn it into a typical. So this is the problem we talk about it and others do as well. Like the Ubisoft formula, which had become so common, they've basically flooded the market with games that played all very similarly. And I think people are tired of it. Uh, I think they need to find a way to to change things up. They did express interest in reducing the scale of their upcoming Assassin's Creed game, I think. And it looks to be a little bit more back to basics. Yeah. And if they pull that off, if they do it right, it could actually really put the series back on the map. I mean, I think they sold well, but people just had enough. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I just think they need to go back to the um, to the kind of ambition that we saw with Assassin's Creed Unity that was so ambitious that the consoles couldn't really handle it. Um, but, you know, these new consoles definitely can. You know, there's there's so much in there that, that's, you know, so much potential for going back to the core of what has made Assassin's Creed great, which was the realization of these amazing cities. I think so. But I, I feel like Ubisoft itself really needs... They've turned into this very... Uh, I mean, every every company's money driven, but they seem to to have this attitude that reminds me a lot of mobile companies more than anything else, where it's just about the bandwagon, getting, squeezing every little every little dollar out of the players, and it's created types of games I think that are almost 
designed specifically to tap into that mentality rather than creating something that's just fun. And that Ubisoft games used to be imaginative and fun and interesting. I mean, think about their early 2000s period when they rebooted Prince of Persia. They developed that original Beyond Good and Evil. They were doing great stuff with Rayman uh, and a lot of other stuff. Like they were really producing excellent creative games that didn't feel like they were just there to squeeze a little more money out of their players. And at a certain point, they must have seen the dollar signs from microtransactions and just keeping these people playing games almost like a service, of course, haha, uh, that they just couldn't resist moving in that direction. Or, or what about uh, the Ubisoft that made freaking Spies versus Mercs in Splinter Cell? Or any which... of the simulator games that they did on PC, which are all gone at this point. Uh, I think the one gem that they have is their their German studio, which makes things like uh, Settlers of Catan and it's Blue Bite. Blue basically. Bite, yeah. I think they've been the one gem in all of this, where Anno eighteen hundred and stuff like that have just been really successful games that everyone really likes. Um, that's been like the, the one output of theirs that I think is probably been the best the last like five like what is it, how many years have been since they acquired them well it's been a great acquirement that's all i want to say there well there's you know i think i mentioned it earlier the bandwagon you know they're just jumping on bandwagons here the worst one being the whole uh ubisoft quartz nft oh i forgot about that oh, oh, yeah man. <laughs> um which backfired tremendously and um you know basically subtracted a massive amount of credibility I don't know. You know, obviously they're in a, a really bad spot at the moment. Hopefully the new Assassin's Creed will start to turn things around. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not You know, looking looking at the data here, I'm, I'm, I think I see where they went wrong. Just Dance 2020 was the last entry to release on the original Wii. <laughs> and you notice what? as soon as they stopped releasing Just Dance on the Wii, everything just went south. Uh, I think there's a connection there. <laughs> Okay. That, that is definitely it. I, I can see the shares <laughs> rallying as we speak. <laughs> okay, uh, I think that's it. That's it for our news section this week. Let's move on to supporter Q&A. This is the part of the show where our supporters posit questions to us. We choose the ones which we think are the best slash the ones we are most best equipped to answer. And uh, here we go. Um, actually, I'm going to um, start with a question which should have gone into the Xbox section. It's from Selwyn Nipples. Uh, with regards to Microsoft's green mission, do you think that the Xbox controller still using AA batteries aligns with that mission? Or should Microsoft also start including rechargeable cells in their controllers? Personally, I can see both sides. When an AA battery fails, you simply throw away a battery and not the whole controller. This is a big mm. debate we actually had with Microsoft when we were in Seattle, right, John? When we actually saw yeah. the new controller, which is, you know, what's the, what, what are the arguments pro and con with uh, using AA batteries. It's kind of, you know, uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other, really, isn't it? Well, uh, I, I'm someone that actually greatly prefers using AA batteries, to be honest. I feel like uh, the, because so with the Xbox controller specifically with the way they're designed, yes, you can use disposable AA batteries all day, but there are a multitude of rechargeable kits available for these controllers, including a first party one that basically allows you to stick a battery in your Xbox controller, wire it up and charge it, and it behaves exactly like any other internal battery. The key here, though, is that when it fails, which it will, uh, you can replace that either quickly with regular AA batteries or with another rechargeable battery. We've now 
gone since I guess 2006 is when PS3 launched. And that was the first mainline console to launch with controllers that had a built-in lithium ion battery. And that has not been a good situation for the, for the DualShock 3. Uh, those batteries have failed in many controllers. Uh, when you pick up a controller after not playing the PS triple for a while. And though, I mean, I don't know who doesn't play it all the time. I sure do. I mean, I'll be playing uh, it right if, now. I mean, uh... exactly. But if you have a dead DualShock 3, uh, you actually need to find a specific type of old school USB cable, the, the mini connector. Yep. And even then, not all of those cables are actually able to charge the DualShock 3, mm-hmm. right? Some, some cables will not charge it. So you're scrambling for cables, looking around, you try to charge it. Maybe the battery's actually shot and it dies after a few minutes. It's just frustrating. You can go online and order them and replace them internally. But even then, a lot of these are like cheap knockoff batteries that are no better and they die immediately. So it's actually a real issue there. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the same problem with the DualShock 4 and DualShock 5. I think Xbox, doesn't their Elite controller have an internal battery, though? Uh, I'm not sure, um, even though I've actually, got, I've actually got one right here. <laughs> it, oh, man, I've wanted one of those, but I never got one. Just, I don't want to spend that much for Well, you know, the bay isn't there, right? So, oh, so it must be, it must be an internal, internal battery, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually agree with you, John. I actually think that uh, having that bay where you can actually use double A's or you can use a rechargeable cell is, is the way forward. And uh, yes... Um, we shot a couple of PC time capsule videos that required the the triple, and um, I had real <laughs> I had real problems find actually getting. First of all, uh, the battery is dead on this one. Secondly, the cable is not a, a standard USB anymore. It's a, it's an old one, which uh, I eventually found the cable, but uh, it was it was tough going. The other issue to mention real quick is like again, as somebody that does keep old hardware around. Uh, for as for retro uses um those lithium ion batteries can occasionally sort of bulge and explode and yeah. cause damage yeah, yeah. right they can. so let's say you have a drawer full of DualShock 3s you got some vitas in there you got psps in there though you can change that rechargeable battery more easily you have all this stuff in a drawer for years and you forget about it right yeah you open it up one day and you've got bulging lithium ion batteries that actually are dangerous just like all forming in there, destroying the controller. And there's no like obvious user way to replace it in most of those devices. It is possible, but it's not like a user uh, accessible compartment like on Xbox. And I think that's a huge deal. And I, I really think, uh, and it's even before Xbox, like the, the GameCube, I still use my WaveBird controller to play GameCube games. And that thing uses AA batteries and it's just... I can leave AA batteries in there for like years and come back and it's still worth it. <laughs> yeah. the, the battery life is incredible on that thing. Yeah. And it's just, I think having a replaceable battery socket like that is so important for long-term longevity mm-hmm. of these systems. It's just a temporary convenience factor when you have an internal battery, but it's always inevitably going to be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in defense of the triple, um, it does actually support the DualShock 4. Um, unfortunately, one of the games that we were looking at, the orange box, you plug in your DualShock 4, you boot the game, and it says uh, the the battery on your six-axis controller <laughs> is dead, or, or words to that effect. And, it, you know, I actually had to go and find a, a DualShock or a six-axis to actually get the game to boot it's, there. It's funny you mention that, Rich, because I suspect if you went through the entire library of the PS Triple, you'd find a lot of games that have issues with the DualShock 4, mm-hmm. right? 
Yeah. I don't know if anybody's compiled a list, but I'm sure they're out there. One thing I'm also thinking about is it was mentioned at the beginning that uh, the person said you just kind of throw these batteries away. But depending upon where you live, there also could be readily available battery receptacle containers for proper disposal. And they exist for like uh, AA, AAA, whatever batteries, all the standard form factors that you see in consumer devices. But they don't usually actually accept things like laptop batteries or internal lithium ion batteries, exactly which are part right. of the kit. So those have to be uh, disposed of separately. There's mm -hmm. a good recycling and disposal thing, at least in Germany here, for AA, AAA, things that you would use in an Xbox, but not for your your dual shocks and things like that's that. exactly what we do i collect double a batteries same here in a little little <laughs> box and then when it's time you take them to the recycling spot mm -hmm. and you're good okay uh, let's move on to the next question it's actually three questions because um oh. uh yes we got uh we've got a potential scandal on our hands here <laughs> oh boy <laughs> um first question from todd weitzel will someone please explain the playstation 5 liquid metal drama to me has sony made any statements about it Second question from 1040STF. Any thought or comment about this week's nonsense story? Don't put your PlayStation 5 vertically or else it's liquid metal will flow out and destroy your console. <laughs> and uh, the third question from Eric Benoit. Any thoughts on the PlayStation 5 being vertical or horizontal since the video came out with the warning about liquid metal? So to just to tackle the first question first of all the drama about the liquid metal thing basically um i think one possibly two repair shops have um had issues with consoles being playstation 5 consoles being uh, presented to them where it looks as though um the liquid metal has actually uh encountered the forces of gravity <laughs> and, the <li> <laughs> and, and, and the liquid metal has kind of dripped out of its surrounding container and onto the motherboard obviously it's highly conductive so it's going to kill your system potentially right um yes so that's basically the issue and the blame is being placed on the fact that the console is um being positioned vertically and uh yeah as i said gravity um, wages a constant battle against that surround that's on the APU there that keeps the liquid metal in check. Um, John, what do you make of all of this? I mean, mm. obviously we have had console dramas in the past. First of all, and I remember this quite distinctly, obviously the Red Ring of Doom on Xbox was a thing, right? And it started with... Um, I don't think it was reports from console repair people. It was just a mass of reports from users that, that, that yeah, gained users. critical mass. I remember I did an article for Eurogamer about it where I actually visited a repair shop and it turned out that they had like massive stacks of dead Xboxes. But then next to it was a slowly growing stack of PlayStation 3s. And um, I got a huge amount of abuse at the time for suggesting that the PlayStation 3 also had an issue and obviously <laughs> obviously <laughs> obviously the wylod thing turned out to be real right in this case oh, yeah i think it's potentially there's something to it but potentially it's nothing we just don't know because we've got like we haven't got that critical mass of reports yet that's the key right there haven't been enough reports from users and i feel like if this was a serious issue we'd see a lot more because that's exactly how this tends to happen. Like consoles break, users go online and talk about it, and you begin to see the dots connect. Yeah. Where here it seems like it is a potential problem on some units. And if the defect rate is low enough, then it's still within like typical margins for any sort of electronics device, right? 
So we don't yet know whether it's a big deal or just like a few units affected. But I think, you know, they obviously engineered the system to be placed vertically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're well within your right to be able to do that. And I don't think Sony, <laughs> I mean, that's just clearly that's what the system was designed for, right? Yep. It doesn't even look very nice when it's in horizontal mode. Well, the other thing is and the way marketing this... and all basic photography from Sony typically shows it in the vertical position. Yeah, and we've even seen instances of, you know, people working for PlayStation taking pictures of their own setup and the system's actually upside down. So, like, <laughs> place it however you want, uh, clearly. But I, vertical placement of consoles has always been kind of a weird thing somehow. Like, the PS2 was, I think, one of the first to really, really focus on that. And there you could, depending on how you inserted the disc, it was possible to scratch them up. The Xbox 360 is is the worst for this because, I mean, if you know it, you're fine. But like, if you have the console in vertical position while it's running, and you should not do this, and you just happen to want to lie it down horizontally, it will destroy your disc for sure. Uh, it absolutely grinds them up. It happened to me once by accident, and yeah, it's uh, it's pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. You you can't you can't even really do it gently. You just try to tilt it just enough. You'll hear it like grind up in the drive and so issues with discs and verticality have long been an issue but um yeah i don't know i I think it's, it's basically a wait and see scenario on this but um yeah. you know bearing in mind that there's now like 30 million of those units out there we don't know how many of them would be from launch the launch period mind you but you know it could be something that that becomes a thing it could be something that doesn't. Right now, there just isn't the, date, the right. data to support the idea that it's, a, that it's an issue. That's how the yellow light of death was on PS3. Yeah. Those issues did not emerge right away. It took years, and then they all started failing one by one. Mm-hmm. And I I had that fail as well. The RSX was actually dying, wasn't it, I believe, we've determined in the end? Um, I think it's like more the, the case that the, the, the solder that they were using, they, they shifted to lead-free solder. And um, it caused issues <laughs> when it heated up and cooled down repeatedly. Um, so basically, yeah, the, the the chips, and it could be either the cell or the RSX, would move off there. I I think from what I heard, though, like to repair that now, you essentially need to transplant a different RSX chip into those really? systems. Wow. So, which is which is something that can be done apparently, but that means you're cobbling from another working PS3 of a later vintage. Um, so it's not the best solution, wow, I would that's say, nuts. but yeah, these, these co- man, that lead free solder push, that was also the problem for Xbox 360. Wasn't it? That, that really threw a wrench. The quality the of it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next question. And, um, this one is from Hunter King. That's a, that's a powerful name there. Um, yeah. could shader compilation be done with a minimized app when a PC is idle? I often buy a game before going to bed so that it will be downloaded <laughs> before I wake up. It would be great if hand, if shader compilation was handled during that time. This is an interesting response to your, your manifesto for PC gaming, Alex. Um, yeah, obviously number one point was eliminating shader stutter. And the concept is that basically your system needs some downtime to generate the shader caches. This is an interesting idea, but surely it's the case you need the game code running to, to to compile the shaders. It couldn't be a separate offline process, could it? I, I want to say that it could be, but it would have to be. So imagine you download the game and it already has a lot of the files on your system at that point in time, including like 
the the, the DirectX or Spurvy, whatever code that needs to be compiled. I think they could do it actually as an offline setup as part of the install, but it throws up a lot of other questions as in there needs to be the infrastructure as a part of Steam to include it in the install process. Because like, for example, sometimes when you download a game on Steam, you can see that there are also multiple parts to the process of setting up a game. Like there'll be a verification stage, there'll be an unpacking stage, and you can see the differences on what it's doing to your PC in that moment in time. This would be another stage of the Steam install at that point. And I think it's doable. But the thing that is that is the big problem is, of this is the only time you need shaders compiled is not only when you download and install the game the first time. For users that have the game on their system for long periods of time, every single time they change their driver or maybe their Windows version or maybe the game version or the, the hardware of their GPU itself, maybe they're going to need a new shader compilation stage, at which point, where does the responsibility lie for the shader compilation to occur? Is it with the Steam client at that point in time? Is it some separate thing in game? I think this just is like leads to more problems and complications at this point in time. I like the idea in general, though. I like the idea that there could be a way to do it in an offline way, regardless of what the game does, which is currently not offered for anything. Um, but I don't I think it requires a little bit more support in the industry and some a lot of thought, too, which is something that's missing right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but I, I did get one really quick thing I want to mention is I did get a really good, uh, on discord. I think someone, uh, in, in our channel wrote to me saying that they did pose the question to NVIDIA about, um, distributing shader caches. Yes. Uh, and, and this was fascinating where they said, uh, they don't have the ability to do it, uh, or it would be too much essentially, but that they're already doing it for, uh, Gosh, I forget the name of their streaming service. GeForce all of a Now, GeForce Now. They're already already behind the scenes of GeForce Now, and I kind of want to test this to see if it's actually true with a game that we know that has shader compilation stutter. Um, because if it is true, that means they already have the ability to do this. It makes sense that they could, though, because every GeForce Now server blade, especially now with the upgrade, is going to be the exact same hardware, so they can have just really easy um, shader caches being built out for them. But it makes me wonder how they're building them without running the game. Right. Uh, maybe this is something that we should actually pose a direct question to NVIDIA about to figure out what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Could be good advertisement for their <laughs> for their service, maybe, in the end. Uh, but I would love to know how it's being done and investigate that. Or maybe they do play the game and they have an NVIDIA employee that's tasked <laughs> the guinea pig. with every game with maximum cash. The NVIDIA shader yeah, exactly. butler. We'll, we'll see. He's locked in a room, <laughs> generates his caches. Oh, well, gosh. Poor, poor dude. I, I do actually have the, uh, it literally arrived yesterday, the GeForce Now 4080 um, uh, service. So, yeah, I will give it a go. Mm -hmm. We'll see what happens do, there. Do tell. It is interesting, though, that they say that they've still got optimizations to make for the Witcher next gen. Uh, <laughs> which I feel like I, I, I need to try... Uh, GeForce Now again okay. now. It should be, we should be able to <laughs> just, sort that out for you. As I've been pretty harsh on streaming, obviously, and I am just curious. Well, all I can say is I do have gigabit state. internet now, so I have got optimal conditions for using a streaming service. And I played uh, just as uh, with mouse and keyboard, I played Ghost Runner this morning, the demo, because it's, you know, it's freely available. You can just spool it up. Oh, that's a good And um, with keyboard and mouse, the latency, I mean, you can tell it's not quite 
as good as local, but it's not that far away. There are other issues, though. Yeah, uh, so Ghost Runner is a game where in the first like 10 seconds of a the game, there's a shader comp stutter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was... When he jumps down and slashes that guy, yep. I think. <laughs> well, I didn't so notice if, that. if it's not there, that's very Happy curious. Days. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next question, which is related from Anna Rai. Hiya, DF. Uh, what do you think current hashtag starter struggle PC games will look like in 10 years with new hardware? Will it be an undesirable smudge in PC gaming's past? Or will we be able to brute force the stutters on these quote unquote, there it is again, retro PC yeah. games from 2021? Interesting question, right, Alex? Because it kind of, those stutters aren't going away, but it's going to be reliant on how fast a single core yeah. performance on CPUs has got in 10 years. Ah, this is an interesting question. I don't know. Uh, I honestly don't know because there's a huge slowdown right now in how fast CPUs are getting over time. And I did a test. I haven't used it in any content yet, but I do have looking at the size of the shader compilation stutter at the very beginning of Final Fantasy VII's remake, the first one, Integrate or whatever it's called on PC. And it goes from, I think, 700... It goes from like a full on second on the Ryzen 5 3600 <laughs> to something like 750 milliseconds on the Quora 9 1000K and then maybe like 500 milliseconds ish on the 12900K. So there is an appreciable step up with the single threaded performance of the game with each processor. But at this point in time, even if it's above. It's going to take quite a lot of <laughs> uh, magnitudes of power to get it down to something like 16.6 milliseconds. Uh, I don't know what that even entails. Like, because that's at the point in time where it maybe just slightly disappears into the noise of the rest of it. But then the rest of the game could be running the CPU load at two milliseconds at that point in time. And you still have like a 16 to 33 millisecond stutter that you would still see even on a G-Sync monitor. So it's just a bad situation all around. I shouldn't, I, it's one of those things where unlike previous games in the nineties, like, like if you look at the way Quake ran on processors over time, it didn't have like variances in its performance. Usually it wasn't like large stutters. It was just generally low performance. So every single time processors got better, it would just run the game better collectively with this stutter situation. It is such a large mountain to climb that even processors getting better doesn't make the mountain like it still yeah. has that variance it's horrible basically so, you're mm. always going to have that consistency and you're talking about a 500 millisecond stutter going down to 16 right which would be <laughs> which would be huge but that's still only 60 frames per second where you know you'd yeah you'd be wanting to look at 120 as a minimum so that stutter has actually got to go down to sub eight milliseconds really awful situation it's an awful situation so yeah i mean uh, you know the uh, pessimist mm -hmm. in me is saying that, yes, this is an undesirable smudge in PC gaming's past to be. Um, but at least the titles going forward, I do think that enough awareness has been raised now to actually bring about change. But it's just a case of, you know, making sure that we highlight the issues when they still occur, I think. And to be fair, you know, you know, Callisto Protocol, which was the the game that broke you, <laughs> that has at least the um, shader compilation issue has been fixed there, right? So yeah, yeah. You know, the, I haven't played the full game, but it's at least in the thir first thirty minutes. It's better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from Guillermo Uere. 
What do you guys think about gaming laptops? In the last direct, Alex commented something like, you shouldn't play games on a laptop. <laughs> is it about price to performance or is there more to it? With a dock, you can have a desktop-like performance while also being somewhat portable. So yeah, I, I should have pulled you up on that comment, Alex, because I did want to get some additional context on that. Gaming laptops are selling gangbusters. And yeah, they are. Um, yeah. Why, why shouldn't you be playing games on a laptop? I think it's just about the upgradability in the end where in a couple of years, so you have like people that bought middling Ryzen, uh, Zen, Zen, what is it? Zen two stuff. You know, they had those PCs and maybe they bought a GTX 1060 or an RTX 2060 at that time point in time. They had a middling PC. They had a, for the time, okay PC. And then two, three years later, they had things like, you know, the X3D processor, they had Ampere, that RDNA 2, now RDNA 3, and uh, add a Lovelace. They have an upgrade path if they want it. With a laptop, you're kind of always rebuying your new system. And I feel like that sucks. <laughs> I've okay. never liked what about that. The, wasn't there always there's a external graphics card sort of yeah, docks for laptops? Yeah, is that still around? There are big bandwidth implications there. Uh, the connect between the laptop and the... And, and the sort of Not external chassis causes problems. And um, I think the bigger problem is basically that you end up with a lopsided system because laptop CPUs are typically slower than uh, desktop ones by quite uh, a margin. And then, you know, basically there's, there's guys out there who are connecting, you know, Ultrabook-style dual-core Pentiums, not Pentiums, Core i3s or Core i5s, yeah. you know, with an external... Um, uh, you know, like 1080 Ti or something, and you just get a horrible experience because you're just CPU limited all the That's time. That's a shame. Um, my take on this is I actually think, that, you know, this. I don't think you shouldn't not game on a, on a gaming laptop. <laughs> I've done it. I've done it. Uh, because there's been some really good experiences there. But you do have to bear in mind that, as Alex says, there is no upgrade vector, really. You have to buy a whole new laptop. And um, but I'm certainly going to be interested to see, you know, the, the extent to which stuff like um, DLSS and frame generation actually makes a difference to the longevity of um, these latest laptops that are coming along. I do find that quite intriguing. And it, we are reaching the point now where um, the latest desktop processors are basically blasting power through for minimal performance gains. And uh, the laptop chip ships should should be comparable in you know to, should be able to get good experiences there. I, I think laptops for gaming are perfectly viable, and also it really just depends on your lifestyle and where you need it. Right? Yeah, like for us, we work from home. We don't really need. It doesn't make sense to have a gaming laptop that really right. Uh, but a lot of people have a genuine use for it. I mean. I've had one gaming laptop many, many years ago, and I used it when I moved uh, to another country, and I wanted to continue to PC game. And at the time, that was a super high-end system, but you know, with the desktop Pentium Four in it, and it's it's it had the weird thing where you could actually change out the graphics chip. Right. It yeah. Had an upgrade pat. You could pull up the keyboard and swap in a more powerful GPU. Uh, that kind of thing has gone away, obviously, but you know, it was a it was a fun idea. The other thing I like about gaming laptops is that they're engineered to run at their um, most efficient states, so they're not blasting the CPU or the GPU with maximal power. They're operating in the sweet spot between performance and power, which I think is quite good. And I actually think that um, when you see, like, you know, I, I had like a Razer Blade fourteen. 
I think it was, or 15. And when you see a laptop like that that's performing similarly to this massive PlayStation 5 sitting right next to it, it is kind of like a, a bit of a technological wonder, I think. I, I mean, fundamentally, gaming laptops, to me at least, occupy the space between like a Steam Deck and a yeah, desktop absolutely. PC. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's just like a Steam Deck, just slightly less portable, but still very portable, I'd say. Mm-hmm. The main issue for me is noise. You know, the, the engineering on the cooling solutions on these things is such oh. that, you know, you have to game with headphones just to get away from the high-pitched whine of the fans. Those small diameter fans mm, and this yeah. awful whine. Yeah, that, that is pretty bad. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the final question. This one from Chris Burns, and it could strike horror into Oliver, who's editing this. <laughs> Uh, what does digital foundry think of producing the weekly df direct in 4k the host recordings could remain at 1080p however clips graphics and multiple host views could be at 2160p would the increased workflow time be worth it that's the key point right the workflow time because you know we're recording this friday morning oliver's going to be straight on the edit later today and then we hope to get this out to supporters we've got a pretty good track record of doing this on saturday but when you're dealing with 4K resolution, then basically your your whole production workflow sort of slows down. Way. Yeah. By yeah just encoding amount. the video takes significantly yeah. longer. Mm-hmm. And then once it's finished, the video file that you have to upload it's is huge. significantly larger, especially for an hour plus 4K video. Yeah. So it's going to take longer to get online. Then for our patrons, if they wanted to download it, <laughs> yes. we're looking at a gigantic file for them, which then also costs more bandwidth for Hour us. Hour-long 4K. Is, which is annoying. Yeah, that's a lot. And beyond that, this is more of a talk show kind of thing. And I suspect if we actually looked closely at the data, the majority of users are not sitting there carefully watching the screen for the entire show. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like 4K is a huge waste of, of bandwidth, time, everything uh for something like this yep and there wouldn't be any real appreciable improvement no it wouldn't change the the quality of the conversation (laughs) Um, or would it not (laughs) i think uh one thing to point out is that on the best graphics thing which was filmed in the direct style um yeah oliver did actually make it a 4k video because you know it was was about graphics that made more sense exactly for that type of video but for the normal direct not so much Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's it. That's the final question of the show and uh, the end of the show. So if you enjoyed it, please do like, subscribe, share, ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications. As usual, no guarantees there. That is my disclaimer. And of course, the DF Supporter Program, um, you know, we made this show for supporters. It's kind of turned into something bigger than that. But, you know, fundamentally supporting us gets you early access. You get an exclusive uh, podcast feed version of it uh, arriving early at the same time. All manner of bonus goodies, all manner of amazing stuff going on there. So please do consider that. But that's all from us for this week. Thanks for watching.